Our text this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We will read verses 9 through 12. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. We will consider this morning a holy ambition. The Word of God reads, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your own hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And that ends the reading of the Word of God. Most of us have seen movies that are based on a true story. One of my favorite true story movies is Bridge of Spies especially because I saw it right after visiting um, Germany. And, uh, and it was fascinating to, to relive the scenes of that city and watching the unveiling of the movie and then knowing it was a true story. If they had to make a movie about our lives, I don't know about yours, but mine would be pretty boring. Sometimes I've thought, what if Hollywood made a movie about my life? It would be a disaster, boring, nothing to tell. But God is making a movie. He's making a big film about his son. According to 1 Corinthians 5, Romans 8, at the end... The purpose of creation and redemption will be unveiled. And it will be to bring all things in subjection to Christ. And it will be to glorify and unite all things around his son. Ephesians 3 says that right now God is teaching the angels, the principalities and powers the celestial beings, his manifold wisdom through the church. To me, that is fascinating. It is fascinating that we are actually on film, on a live cam, celestial, universal live cam that God has chosen to choose or to reflect his glory through our lives, through our boring meaningless, purposeless lives. But guess what? They are not. They are not to God. They are not to His purposes of glorifying Himself. Our lives do have this overarching purpose to manifest and display the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And that is, to me, fascinating. Our text of this morning is addressed to common Christians, common people, small church, probably the size of ours, who knows if even smaller, synagogues were not large. Synagogues were gatherings of very few people. 
And that's where Paul would go and found churches. And there would be many of them in a city. So probably in those cities, those letters we read are addressed to the church in Rome. But there were many synagogues, many house churches spread out through the city that would read the letter. That's the way Christians gathered. And this letter addressed to common people, to regular people like you and I, Paul paints a picture or sends a film or a video of how a Christian's life should look like. And how does a Christian life should look like? Should look like a loving person with holy ambitions. Because if you read those verses, that's what you find. A loving person with a holy ambition. And that's pretty much my outline. My outline is, how am I supposed to live as a believer? Two simple things, love and live. And live for the purposes of God. How exactly does that manifest? Freddie was talking about applying the word. Well, how do we apply the word? How do we apply the gospel? Here's a way. This passage has a very simple, practical way to apply the gospel into our daily lives. First, abounding in brotherly love. That's what verse 8 or 9 says. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And this love described here is brotherly love. Philadelphia. We have that city named after that. Brotherly love because it is a love of affection, the love of fondness, the love of friendship, the love of proximity that we have with those that are close to us. And Paul is saying to them, love one another. You have to have that love. But then he says, in fact, you have been already taught by God to love one another that way. And and to me it's interesting because Paul says, I don't need to write to you. God already taught you this. When did God teach them that? When they came to the Lord. Once you were regenerated, one of the first signs of being spiritually alive in New Testament language is that you love the brethren. You love this Strange gathering of people. We are so manifold, so diverse, culturally different, skin color different, background different. We, we, we have no connection to one another. And yet you love the brethren. Not only those in your church, your denomination, those who think like you. You just love the people of God wherever they are. That is a fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, love. First one, it is a, an instant manifestation of being born again that you love one another. It is an evidence of regeneration. According to 1 John 3.14, it is a hallmark of being a disciple. 1 John reads, this new command, or actually the Gospel of John reads, this new commandment I give to you, love one another, says Jesus, as I have loved you. And this love is exemplified and displayed precisely by God himself, by the Lord Jesus, even when he said, you are my friends, and here's the proof of being a friend, 
that you're ready to give your life for your friends. And Jesus says, that's what I'm doing for you. I am giving my life for you because you are my friends. In fact, Jesus was called the friend of sinners. And I love it because he was called that way in his earthly ministry before dying for those friends, sinners who would come to him and for whom he chose to die. And, and, and it's fascinating that Paul in Romans 5.8 grabs onto that thought and says, God shows his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's not when we started to amend our lives and sort of rectify our ways. And when we started to be better people that, oh, now God is looking at me with favor. No, no, no. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And just a practical side note, some Christians focus too much in the while we were yet enemies. And they have this gospel in which they are fuming fire and brimstone all the time. You You read their rantings on Facebook or their rants. You read their posts. And they seem to be this angry people. They think they are the new Elijah or the new Jeremiah to America. And then somehow, someway, they expect that people will see the love of God through them. I don't know exactly how that works, but definitely it doesn't, I don't even see it, and I'm a believer with them. Perhaps we should focus more on this aspect of God's mercy and grace and kindness, even to his enemies, to the point that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And Paul says, love the brethren. You've been taught by God to do that. Now, they already did it. Because Paul says, you're already doing it. And he doesn't say, well, okay, you're already doing it, forget about it. No, excel even more. Do it more. Then you do it, then find ways and be creative and be studious as as to how can I even show that brotherly love more. Now the Thessalonians, Thessalonica was the capital of the Macedonian province. And in Paul's writing, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Philippians 4, you realize that the Macedonians were very generous in their giving for benevolence. Victor this morning was talking about the benevolence given in Cornerstone, which was very generous last year. Well, the Macedonians were poor, but they were very generous in their giving. That was a manifestation of their love to the brethren. They sent money to strangers. They didn't know anybody to our knowledge in Jerusalem. But they sent tons of money with Paul for the poor in Jerusalem. He says, well, excel even more. Proverbs 11.25 says that those who water will be themselves be watered. The generous man will receive generosity. God will show himself kind and abundant with those who give. And in that context, Solomon says, you stand up with your hose to water others, you'll feel the cold water in your back that somebody's watering you as well because that's the way God operates. So Paul is exhorting the Thessalonians, excel even more in what you're doing for the brethren. Tangibly, manifestly, not the love of mouth and tongue, but the love of word and works indeed. 
Second point is that Paul is commanding them to have a holy ambition. In verse 11 he writes, Besides loving the brethren and and excelling even more in what you do, aspire, verse 11, to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and and to work with your own hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is an interesting commandment, which requires that I do some reading, but to make it easy for you not get distracted with my reading, we'll put the reading on the screen, so we will read together. But this commandment is is very interesting because Paul says, Like the NAS translates, I like that translation. Make it your ambition. Have this passion. Love this passion. You see some men, sometimes you like to read, to to hear those those TED Talks uh, of our day about men who have been successful. And you can see the passion of Elon Musk or of Jeff Bezos or others. And you see how they have succeeded. And Paul says, well, I have one, one here for you. Something you can be ambitious about. Something you can be studious in doing. Something you can try your best in aiming at. Different translations render it differently. But what is the context of this commandment? Thessalonica had a peculiar system called, and Lynn correct my pronunciation, I think you say, Patronage, or patronage, it comes from patron. They had these patrons. Patrons were these kind of public figures, men or women of power, political power and financial power, which were protectors of certain kinds or groups of people. So you would attach yourself to these patrons. You would go in the morning, greet them, go to their homes, always be surrounding their homes. If there's anybody here who's lived in the Dominican Republic, he might remember these, these presidential homes that were always surrounded by people looking for something, looking for some hand-me-down. That's very, I don't know how common it is in Latin America, but I remember it distinctly in the Dominican Republic where the president lived. You had all of these all of these peddlers just trying to get something out of the president or, their, or, or the president's cohort. Well, the Thessalonians had a system kind of like that. They had these patrons. Let me read to you what, what some commentators write on the subject. They say, uh, clients were attached to patrons of higher status and economic solvency hoping to receive from them benefits such as food and representation, and to maintain their rights as citizens and subjects alike, they were constrained to seek the protection of powerful men. So when Paul says to lead a quiet life, mind your own affairs, this is the social context he has in mind. Let's do some more reading. Evidently, says this commentator, the way some Christians participated in public affairs and their economic dependence on their clients did not aid the cause of the church in the community. The solution Paul presents is to retire from public debate 
into quick receiving support from patrons, cutting the economic ties by taking up manual labor instead so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, so that you will not be dependent on anybody, is what he writes. Self-sufficiency was another ideal that was commonplace and was especially promoted by the Stoics. The demonstration of this virtue by the Christians, as opposed to being dependent clients, clients of the patrons, would enhance their status among the unbelievers in their city. And then finally, while this passage reflects the Christian ethic of work that is rooted in the creation ordinance, it would be unwise for us to build, to understand the prohibition as a call to us to abandon any form of involvement in politics. What the apostle warns again against is becoming dependent as well as disruptive members of society whose reputation in no way enhances the gospel. So back to our text, that's the context. That's why it was written. Have this holy ambition that you lead a quiet life and you mind your own business and work with your own hands and are not dependent on anyone. And that is the context. Don't be these people who are there peddling favors from public, political, financially solvent economic individuals. Now, the application, of course, has a lot more than that. We saw the context. But it can apply to us in our daily lives. Mind your business peacefully. Have that as an ambition. If you work at a place that has a union and you are a believer, Paul is saying, don't be the union heckler. Is it wrong for the Major League Baseball players to have a strike and demand better conditions for their work? Well, it's not necessarily wrong. I don't know the details of what they are, they are demanding, it is not necessarily wrong to ask for better working conditions and social issues. I'm not saying, Paul is not saying that's wrong, but he's saying if you are a believer, make sure you're not the main union heckler and speaker and strike caller in your institution. Well, I don't work for a company that it's a union. Well, then make sure that at the water fountain and coffee area and kitchenette in your office, you are not the complainer, grumbler, backbiter, and troublemaking person at your office. Have you noticed that there are some people at work that you sort of talk to them and you're just having your coffee, minding your business. Oh, water. I hope it's not used. I hope Freddie didn't use it. <laughs> But how long would it take you to, take, to, to drink a glass of water at the kitchenette or have a coffee? In five minutes with this person, and these bosses are a bunch of idiots, and this company doesn't know where it's going, and I don't know what on earth are we doing, and I don't know how this person was nominated to be director or manager, and you just go to your desk and your head weighs like a hundred tons because of this person just talking. Negative stuff. 
I hope that's not you at work. And that if you happen to deal with those people, that you just mind your business and take off. Because that's Paul's point. Have as your, as your ambition to mind your business quietly. And to be a useful and productive worker. To be one that is known for being useful for being profitable. We have people here who own companies. And probably you have experienced the downside or the downfall of economic turns that cause you to go into having to lay off people and let go of people. And you just go through your list. <laughs> you say, there's, there's a couple here that I will get money out of my own pocket to pay them but I will not let them go. Because they are useful, productive, and wear many hats. Make sure you're one of those. That's Paul's point. That you are known to be useful and productive, working with your own hands, as we have instructed you, says Paul. He's not decrying intellectual or managerial Labor. That's not the point. The point is, well, if you're a white collar, you're just this capitalistic. No, that's not the point. He's not negating the value of those who do work from the top. In fact, I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to get in trouble with anyone. But anyways, his point is, be known for being useful, productive. Be an example of your Savior who said... My father is working until now. And I also work. I, I meditated on that passage the other day. Jesus says, my father is working until now. We have this idea of God sitting in some throne, just sitting there. That's not what Jesus says. He says, my father is working, actively engaged in sustaining creation. Actively involved with the affairs of his kingdom. Because my father is working, I'm also working, even if it's the Sabbath. That's the argument in the context of Jesus' statement. The curse is not work. You've heard the expression, oh, work is so evil, they have to pay you to do it. That's not theologically sound. Work is a blessing. If it were not, God would have not given Adam work before the fall. The problem is that after sin, we have to work with the sword of our brows. Yes. We have to work with pain. And I have news for you. Every job brings its pains. I have friends my age who've had, I don't know, 10 jobs, 12. Fine, have 20 if you want to. But you will discover that whenever you go, wherever you go, you'll find something. Because there is a curse attached to work. You will work with toil and with pain. It doesn't matter what you do. Therefore, enjoy the one you have. Do your best. If you can get any better, awesome, get it. But you're not going to find any perfect happiness at some place that is the perfect job. There's nothing perfect this side of eternity. Get it in your head. No perfect couple, no perfect wife, no perfect husband, no perfect church, no perfect pastor, no perfect anything. So stop dreaming 
<laughs> and labor and mind your business quietly. Thirdly, excel at whatever you do. Paul says, mind your business. Make it your ambition to work with your own hands and do it well. Excel at whatever it is you do. Oh, the forgotten jewel of consistent diligence. Somebody diligent that excels and gets better every day at what they do. And by the way, I know there are mothers here. Mothers whose main work is at home. And that is very useful and productive. A mother who chooses to be a homemaker will bring intangible value to her family. Even in the savings and the way things are optimized when it is mom who's taking care of business at home. So I am not limiting this to people who work outside. I am mindful of those who work doing laundry, changing diapers, cooking, and doing these menial things that are so despised in society, but are extremely valuable. And two people know, the husband, the children, and God. They know how valuable it is what some of those mothers and women at home do. But the point is, excel at what you do. Don't settle for mediocrity. Don't. Don't send that report without reviewing it. Don't hand in that job or that work, whether it is mechanical, electric, whatever it is you do, don't settle for mediocrity. Victor, our deacon, tested for third degree black belt in Taekwondo. If that school still has the same philosophy it had many years ago, there's one thing they teach you. Do your best. Don't compare yourself or your improvement to the guy who can kick up to his whatever. If all you can do is kick to your knee, fine. Make sure that is your best. And make sure you improve on your best. And that's all. Excel at what you do with whatever talents God gave you. Don't settle for mediocrity. Some person received two talents, another one five, another one ten. Whatever is your portion, do your best. Why? Because Colossians 23.23 says, Whatever you do, do your work with all your heart, as though you were working for the Lord, not for people. He is the ultimate supervisor. He is the one who sees it all. Fourthly, be an example with your work toward outsiders. The text says that. So that you may not give any reason to talk to those who are outside. What an imitation of Christ when we work. Who was he? How was he known? Isn't he the son of the carpenter? Many times I've wondered, what would it be to do business with Jesus? Lord, I, I want this rocking chair. You, you want, Well, not Lord. Maybe you did not know him as Lord. But you would just bring, you want to have a rocking chair built. Or painted or sanded, or whatever it is. What would it be doing business with the son of the carpenter? May that be your example. What would it be to employ the son of the carpenter? That is our savior and the one we imitate. Outsiders are watching. They see us perhaps reading our Bibles at lunchtime. 
or they see us when we bow down to pray before our meal, or they see us when we restrain our necks and our eyes from following the beautiful young woman who goes by us and we just keep minding our business. And they see those things. But do they see also excellence at work? Do they see also diligence? Do they see a quiet spirit who aims at doing and producing the best that person can? Plug in for church membership. Paul says outsiders. He calls them outsiders. Who are those outsiders? Those who are not in the kingdom. So for Paul, there were people in and people out. Some people say, I don't believe in church membership. Well, you can call it whatever you want. Just that those believers in the New Testament are recognized for being a distinct group of people who were in and others who were out. And that was known, tabulated, accounted for somehow, some way. Not necessarily the way we do it in Cornerstone. And then there's a fifth aspiration in the text. Do all of these things to become financially independent. The text says, and be dependent on no one. Now, we know the context. Don't be dependent on the patrons. We know that's a context. But it still has a wider application. It has a wider application of how you can classify people. There are those who save. There are those who save too much and they hoard. There are those who steal and take. And there are those who give. Depend on no one. Be one who gives. And a practical application that I could perhaps not preach in many churches outside of the U.S. Beware of a society that endorses financial slavery. Get this new TV. 125 inches for $35 a month or a week or whatever. And then another thing and another thing. And at the end of the year, as Freddie says, oh, I need financial help. But you have $1,635.23 that you have to pay monthly between credit cards and companies and things you bought that you did not even need. Why? Because we live in a society that encourages slavery. You know what slavery? The slavery of Proverbs 22.7. The rich rules over the poor. And the, borrow, the borrower is a slave of the lender. That's slavery. We don't like to talk about it. All those rich people, that 1% hoarding everything. Yeah, they're the owners of Walmart. And they, Do you have a Walmart credit card? Or a Target credit card? Or a JCPenney's credit card? And if you pull your wallet out, you have 15 credit cards? Yes, you're paying for the 1%. Because in downtown, the names you see on the buildings are not Edwin Gonzalez or yours. You see First Union, Citibank, and other names. And there's a reason for that. They make the money out of the poor. Proverbs also says, run like a gazelle. From financial slavery. Ever seen Discovery Channel? The lion or the tiger or the cheetah after a gazelle. Gazelle, how do you say it? How do you say it? Gazelle. Have you seen the gazelle jogging? Hey, the lion is there. No, no. She, the gazelle is running for his life. 
Proverbs says, run like that from those who are trying to lend you things. Yeah, why not? I have the right to have a Mercedes. It's only $835.27 a month in the lease. Insurance? Only $600. Right? And then you go to do your maintenance? You think you're going to get the $29.99 special from your Jiffy Loop? No, it's $600. And then, oh, but this country is sucking my life out. No, you're doing it to yourself. Paul says, work with your own hands, with diligence, quietly, to have financial independence. What? To be rich? Not to give more. To be able to aid those in need and not be an occasion of stumbling to those outside. Do not use laws that are there to endorse fiscal irresponsibility. Don't. Let your credit score speak of your faith. Now, I'm not speaking from a podium. I know what it is to have credit score in the 500s, okay? So I'm not here saying, look at me. I'm the example. Oh, no. In fact, some of you do not know it. I had to leave the ministry because of that. Because my home life was in disarray, and part of it was a financial disaster. So, I'm not talking like one who doesn't know what it is the pains of being upside down. But you know what? Put it back up. Because that credit score also speaks of the gospel in you. That is the application of the word Paul is giving. And I'm not saying this with a high hand. Believe me, and some of you know, I know what it is to be under. But that's not an excuse. We have to reflect the gospel in our loving, in our living, in our giving, in our serving, in our work, in how we mind our business with diligence and quietly. In conclusion, yes, the gospel is reflected in a life of loving and giving. The gospel is reflected in an orderly life. I say this, and I've said it before, some people even remember that from years ago that I said it. Yeah, the gospel is reflected in how your garage looks. Please don't go to mine now. It's a disaster. But we're remodeling. I have an excuse. Yeah, but the gospel is reflected there. God is a God of order. God is a God of peace. If your whole life, if your desk, your house, your closet, your garage, everything about you is in total disarray, you feel that you're drowning. That doesn't reflect the gospel. That's applying the word. Freddie spoke about it. Well, here's Paul applying the word. And I I know I'm sounding so moralistic. But that's our text. Can't run from the text. Our testimony goes before our speech to outsiders. And, And don't get me wrong. We have to speak the gospel. I doubt anybody will come to the Lord because I'm a good worker, I'm faithful, I'm whatever, I'm faithful to my wife, I go to church on Sundays, and I pray. Oh, yes, tell me, I want to come to the Lord as a result of seeing you. That doesn't work. You have to speak. (laughs) Now, 
our lives go before our speech. What we do runs miles ahead and extremely loud before whatever we do. So, yes, our testimony has to reflect the gospel before outsiders. And finally, I love this part. Even if your credit is in 450, guess what? Somebody else paid your greatest debt. Don't forget that. Don't forget that in the eyes of God, our credit is 850. It's perfect. Jesus paid it all. And as we embrace these things, and we face these practical applications of the gospel, loving and living, excelling in fraternal love, having as a holy ambition a quiet life that aims at at excelling at what we do, and it aims at being able to be givers and not takers. The greatest gift is that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And my greatest comfort are his words. There's no sin that will not be forgiven the children of men. The only sin that will not be forgiven is resisting God till you die. If you do that, sorry. We cannot do anything about it. But if not, anything is forgivable. The blood of Christ covers all of our sins. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Father, bless your word and help us to live according to it. Help us to live in its light. Help us, Father, to reflect Monday through Friday at the office, at school, at home, Saturdays at the shopping mall, Sundays with one another, when we're alone, when we're accompanied. Help us to reflect the gospel of grace with which we have been saved. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.